Why did the ocean break up with the pond? She thought he was too shallow. Ooh, rough. That's a a rough one. (laughs) Rough. (laughs) Welcome to a special stay-at-home episode of Talking Underwater. One water, one podcast. My name is Bob Crossan. I am Senior Managing Editor for Water and Waste Digest. My name is Katie Johns, Managing Editor of Stormwater Solutions. And I'm Lauren Belcello, Managing Editor for Water Quality Products. In this special stay-at-home episode of Talking Underwater, we'll, we will discuss the County of Maui, Hawaii versus Hawaii Wildlife Fund Supreme Court case. We will also share some interviews that we have from Nathan Gardner-Andrews, who is the General Counsel and Chief Advocacy Officer for the National Association of Clean Water Agencies, Jesse Richardson, Professor of Law and Lead Land Use Attorney for West Virginia University, and finally, Jay Stone, who is Chief Engineer for Bell Collins, Hawaii. But first, a little background on this case. So this case started back in 2012 in the lower courts and eventually made its way to the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. Essentially, the Hawaii Wildlife Fund had sued the county of Maui, claiming that the county needed an NPDES permit, a National Pollutant Discharge Elimination System permit, to discharge water into groundwater because that groundwater eventually made its way to a navigable water of the United States. Now, the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals did say that the county of Maui needed a permit for this, but the county appealed that and brought it to the Supreme Court. On April 23rd, the Supreme Court of the United States ruled in this case that some groundwater should be permitted for discharge, Um, They did not say that the county of Maui, Hawaii needed a permit, but rather said that in certain cases, discharging into groundwater may require a permit, and based that entirely on a term called the functional equivalent of a direct discharge. Now, all of our interviews will discuss a little bit more detailed on this, and if you want some more analysis, you can visit Water and Waste Digest's website, www.dmag.com, and see the SCOTUS ruling there, as well as some analysis along with um, comments from legal experts and whatnot. So we wanted to move into the next thing, but Katie and Lauren, did you have anything you wanted to add before we moved into our interviews? Since we've got a variety of perspectives, so um, we're excited to share those with listeners today and get your feedback as well. Yeah, I agree. I think we're ready to hear from our industry experts. Cool. Well, then let's start with Nathan Gardner-Andrews, who is General Counsel and Chief Advocacy Officer for the National Association of Clean Water Agencies, also known as NACWA. So, hey, everybody, this is Bob from the Talking Underwater podcast. I'm here with Nathan Gardner-Andrews. He is General Counsel and Chief Advocacy Officer for the National Association of Clean Water Agencies, or NACWA. Uh, Nathan, thanks for being on the call. Sure. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to talk a little bit about this County of Maui, Hawaii versus Hawaii Wildlife Fund case. Um, Can you give kind of a brief overview of what exactly this case is? Sure. So this is a case that fundamentally looks at what types of discharges need to have uh, NPDES permits under the Federal Clean Water Act. The case originated a number of years ago 
Um, Maui County, Hawaii, which is a medical member, disposes of its wastewater through underground injection wells, which is a program that is permitted under the Federal Safe Drinking Water Act, not under the Clean Water Act. Some environmental organizations uh, did some testing and found that over a period of time, some of the effluent that was injected into these underground wells eventually migrated through groundwater into the Pacific Ocean, and so filed suit arguing that in addition to being regulated and permitted under the Safe Drinking Water Act, that the county also needed to get a federal Clean Water Act uh, National Pollutant Discharge Elimination System, or NPDES, permit. And that was the legal issue that was um, at, at kind of the core of the case here that made its way all the way up to the Supreme Court. Gotcha. And so the Supreme Court came back saying that some of this should be regulated from the federal uh, government. Um, how do you think that this will impact the industry at large? I imagine this could have wide-ranging implications for a lot of utilities out there. Yeah, you know, I think I think it, it, this is one of the situations where it's going to take a little bit of time to tell how large the impact is, specifically to the municipal clean water sector. Um, interestingly, the court did not actually rule on the question of whether Maui needs a permit or not. It sent the, the case back to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit to determine that decision based on the court's ruling. But really what the court uh, did was it was presented with two competing theories um, in terms of what types of discharges need a permit. Um, the Ninth Circuit had taken a very broad view of the Clean Water Act and said that any discharge that was fairly traceable to uh, 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 you know, a, a pollutant source required an NPDES permit, and that was the position being advocated by um, the environmental petitioners in this case. Um, they really wanted to broaden the scope of what is a discharge under the Clean Water Act. The County of Maui and others who supported the county, including NACWA and other municipal interests, took the position that unless um, there was a clear, very clear direct discharge from a point source into a um, receiving water, um, that it did not require an NPDES permit, and, and, and you know that that position was really arguing for a bright line test. If it's not coming directly out of a, a pipe or a culvert or some type of traditional discrete point source, it doesn't receive uh, doesn't need a permit. The Supreme Court essentially split the difference in terms of how it ruled in this case, and it did not agree with the broad interpretation from the Ninth Circuit and the environmental groups, but it also did not agree with the bright line test being proposed by. Um, the county and the federal government and others. So we're left with what the court is calling a functional equivalent test, which is any discharge that is the functional equivalent um, of, a, of a discharge from a point source should get a permit. Um, but the court was vague on what a functional equivalent is. And so I think what we're frankly looking at here is, um, uh, you know, years of rulemaking and potential litigation going forward to try to get some clarity on um, what is a functional equivalent? What does that mean in terms of who is in or out of the permitting realm? And, and I think as it relates to municipal utilities, it's going to be, uh, it's going to take a little time to tell how far this, this reaches. Um, and, and we're going to have to see how that plays out. Yeah, and so you mentioned the whole rulemaking side of things. Um, how is NACWA planning on getting involved with this? Will you be providing some type of guidance for regulation bodies and stuff like that on this? Um, what, uh, how does NACWA hope to take part in this whole rulemaking aspect? Well, one of the interesting things in the decision was that the court essentially opened the door to say that EPA could step in and provide 
guidance or rule to help clarify from EPA's position what is a functional equivalent and kind of the way um, case law and administrative law works in the United States is that if the federal agency charged with overseeing a statute, in this case EPA, overseeing the Clean Water Act, issues a rule, typically that rule is given deference um, by courts when they review um, a, a regulatory determination made based on that rule. And so um, I think it's very clear that the court is looking to EPA here to craft a rulemaking consistent with the court's decision um, and looking at some of the factors the court enumerated on what would qualify as a functional equivalent. So I think from NACWA's perspective, you know, we, we will be engaging with EPA going forward um, to talk to them about uh, doing a rulemaking. Is this something that they're looking at doing? I know that um, other sectors as well that are regulated under the Clean Water Act are interested in potentially having EPA do a rule. So I expect that there will be effort in the rulemaking front going forward um, the timing is going to be a little bit up in the air. We are in an election year um, with you know, presidential elections coming up this fall, and um, to the extent that there may be a change in administration, that could obviously impact uh, what type of rule or what, what the content of a rule may be that EPA would pursue. So I think there's still a lot of uncertainty around how EPA may do a rulemaking process, but um, I think that the agency is already thinking about this and looking at what it can do to provide some clarity, and certainly we would hope that there would be some clarity for the regulated community. Yeah, yeah. And so well, what about the NACWA membership? Are they aware of this case? Um, have they been saying things about this? Have you heard anything from the membership side? So it's still you know, pretty early days in, in, in terms of reaction to this decision. We've heard from a few of our members, particularly their lawyers, who are kind of really um, in the weeds on these issues. I, I will say quite frankly, given everything else that's going on more broadly right now with the COVID-19 pandemic and uh, the response to that, that frankly right now, the vast majority of our members are focused on providing essential services to their communities and, and keeping their utility staffed and, and keeping their, their staff safe. So that really I think is where the, the interest and the, the full attention is of our membership right now. Um, I would expect that over the coming weeks and months, we'll start to hear more from our members potentially on this case as it filters down um, and their states start to grapple with this and what does this mean from a permitting standpoint. But um, right now, it's been pretty limited to, you know, folks who are kind of in the Clean Water Act legal space who have been tracking this issue for some time. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting um, thing, too, is the state element. I know that um, there was also talk about saying that uh, that perhaps the states should take on this role instead of the federal government. Um, so I thought that was also an interesting factor in all of this. And now we have this decision from the Supreme Court that's like, nope, that it's going to be coming down from the federal side. Yeah, the you know the Clean Water Act is an interesting statute because it's very much based on the notion of cooperative federalism between the states and the, the federal government. And in um, you know though it's forty seven of the states now, the states have delegated permitting authority from the federal government. They're the ones who actually write NPDES permits. That being said, every permit that a state issues can be and often is reviewed by EPA. And so there is this balance between the states acting as the frontline permit writers, but EPA providing that oversight and backstop to make sure that all permits issued by states are consistent with the Federal Clean Water Act. And so I think this is an area given the fact that the court 
did not give us a real clear definition of what is functionally equivalent, the last thing you would want as a regulated entity is 47 different states coming up with 47 different interpretations of what functionally equivalent means. And so I do think there'll be an important role here for the federal government to play in providing some very clear guidance and direction to the states on how to write permits consistent with this decision. Yeah. One of the other things I heard from some other um, lawyers and environmental lawyers and um, utility lawyers as well was that uh, this likely means more case-by-case -case permitting as well. So it seems like it gets a little bit more complicated and may take a little bit longer to get your permits too. I think that's right. I think that's right. And, you know, one, one thing that the case does not address, which um, EPA might want to think about as it makes a desert rulemaking is, you know, are there certain um, types of discharges um, that that EPA feels like it can categorically say these are, you know, these do require permits or these do not require permits based on um, the court's decision. You know, one interesting question that came up during our oral arguments and that was referenced in the court's decision was the issue of septic systems. And, um, you know, there there could be a, a path by, by which EPA may decide um, broadly to exempt all septic systems from permitting um, if they feel they can do so consistent with the court's decision. Um, you know, another interesting thing from the utility perspective to look at would be if you are a permitted utility and you already have a permit at your final point of discharge after you've done treatment, but let's say you have a leak somewhere in your collection system that you're not aware of and there's a small amount of seepage or leakage from the collection system, you know, would, would you need an individual permit for that leak or might EPA say that generally those types of things will be exempt from permitting as long as the utility is following, you know, appropriate, um, you know, CMOM practices or things of that nature. So it'll be very interesting to see how EPA tries to grapple with this and what the agency tries to do to potentially avoid having everything to do, everything having to be a case-by-case -case analysis. You know, are there broad um, types of discharges that are similar in nature that could either be Kind of uniformly classified to be excluded or uniformly classified to be covered by the permitting regulations. Yeah, well, awesome. Thank you so much for your time today, Nathan. I, I appreciate your insights and got a lot of good information. Is there anything else that you wanted to mention about this case uh, moving forward? Uh, no, other than, you know, uh, it was over almost 15 years ago now that we got the infamous Rapanos decision where the term significant nexus became uh, kind of the, the, the term we, we argued over for, for the last 15 years or so. And I uh, suspect that uh, functionally equivalent will, will be similar uh, from the permitting realm going forward. The Supreme Court seems every time it dives into the Clean Water Act to, uh, to, to only muddy the, water, muddy the waters, no, no pun intended, in terms of exactly how far the, the reach of the act is. Yeah. <laughs> well, I appreciate your time, and um, I'm sure that we'll be talking about this for quite some time. I'd love to interview you again and see how things are shot in like maybe six months or something like that. Sounds good. The National Groundwater Association and Water Systems Council filed a joint Friends of Court brief in regard to the County of Maui versus Hawaii Wildlife Fund case which argued that groundwater regulations should be managed by states. So I talked to Jesse Richardson, who's professor of law and lead land use attorney for West Virginia University. 
He's also the attorney for National Groundwater Association and Water Systems Council, and he worked on the brief on their behalf. So I caught up with him to learn more about their perspective. Here's that interview. So I am here today with Jesse Richardson. He's professor of law and lead use attorney for West Virginia University. He's also the attorney for the National Groundwater Association and the Water Systems Council. So we are here to talk today about the County of Maui versus Hawaii wildlife fund case and the Supreme Court's April 23rd, 2020 decision. So thank you, first of all, for joining me, Jesse. I appreciate you taking some time to talk to me today. Thank you for having me. Um, first, for our listeners who may be familiar with this case or the relationship between the associations that you've represented on it, can you please give the listeners a little bit of background on who the National Groundwater Association and Water Systems Council are, why they're investing their time in this case, and how you came to be involved with it as well? Sure. The um, National Groundwater Association and Water Systems Council are both trade associations with uh, representing uh, the groundwater industry. And uh, Water Systems Council is a nonprofit uh, basically composed of different manufacturers, distributors, state associations, and um, water well contractors who are in the industry and they their sole purpose is to advance and support uh, water wells and small water well systems uh, for groundwater supply. NGA is similar, uh, they're a larger group and they also promote groundwater and their members are contractors scientists or engineers, manufacturers, suppliers, uh, students, and folks like that. Uh, so both groups are there to protect uh, groundwater and to promote the groundwater industry. And so thank you for a little bit of background there. So you help them both file a joint Friends of Court brief in regards to the County of Maui versus Hawaii Wildlife Fund case in in which the court brief argued that groundwater regulation should be managed by states. Um, I did read some of the brief. I think it clocks in about 22 pages, um, and I'm not a legal jargon expert um, like you. So can you break down briefly some of the key arguments that were presented there? Uh, yes. Well, the main issue before the court was a fairly novel issue. If someone discharges pollutants into navigable waters, they must get an NPDES permit or National Pollution Discharge Elimination System permit. And Clearly, if that discharge is a direct discharge, you must get the permit. The issue before the court was whether an indirect discharge required a permit. And namely, if, and, and it's hard to avoid technical jargon here, 
uh, and I want to avoid saying discharge because that's technical, but if the pollutant is placed on the soil, for example, goes down into the groundwater, and then eventually makes it makes its way to a navigable water, is that a discharge of a pollutant to navigable water? So that was the question before the court. And Water Systems Council and uh, the National Groundwater Association argued, number one, that both of these groups want to protect groundwater. So they both want to keep groundwater uh, clean and free of contaminants. However, we already have a rather lengthy uh, cadre of state regulations that apply to groundwater. And the Clean Water Act, which is the federal act that we were working under here, Fairly clearly, the language of the Act says that the federal government will cover surface water and the state governments will regulate contamination of groundwater. Now, the federal government provides some funding and some technical assistance, but our argument was that the states would be the most appropriate place to do this for a couple of different reasons. One, the conditions in every state are different, and so states are better positioned to do this. And secondly, a lot of the things uh, that impact groundwater are land use issues, which are best regulated by the state. Yeah, it's it's a really, there's a lot of different sides to this particular case, and obviously NGWA and Water Systems Councils are big advocates for protecting clean groundwater use. Um, one part of the brief that really stuck out to me because it was mentioned numerous times, and I'm hoping you can break down a little bit, is subterraneous streams and percolating groundwater. What are some of the key differences between these two sources and also how the Clean Water Act regulates them? Yeah, and that was a novel argument on our point or on our part, and the court didn't pick up on that, unfortunately. But our argument was that if you look at the case law, like for example Justice Scalia's opinion in the Rapanos case, that in the past the court has only required an NPDES permit if the connection between the where the discharge took place and where the discharge made it into navigable water was basically a stream of water, a continuous flow of water. Whereas most groundwater is what we call percolating groundwater. It seeps into the ground between the particles of the soil, and it is not in any identifiable stream or channel. And that is really, we felt, a good separation between non-point source pollution, which is the province of the states, uh, 
and point source pollution, which is the province of the federal government. And although the justices did discuss some of these issues in the oral argument, uh, none of that found its way into the opinion except that you can see that the dissenters in the case, particularly Justice Alito, discussed uh, septic tanks. And the majority opinion mentioned septic tanks as well. Um, but that was a big issue of contention. And septic tanks are your classic non-point source pollution, where the um, pollutant seeps down into the groundwater. Um, it may combine with pollutants from other um, septic tanks and eventually make its way uh, to a navigable water. But in this case, the majority opinion said that basically the EPA can sort that out. I don't think any of the justices want all the septic tanks in the United States to have to get an MPDES permit. But at least at this point in the litigation or in the fight over this, uh, they said, let's let the EPA worry about that. Interesting. That certainly m might leave a few question marks to be determined. So what does this decision specifically mean for water well contractors and even, like you just mentioned, homeowners with private septic tank systems maybe? Um, what's, what's the future going to look like there? I think the only thing that everybody really agrees on in this decision is that it raises a lot of uncertainty. So I think the only certain thing is uncertainty. Um, this decision did not really clarify things much. And so I think for water well contractors, for septic tank owners, for local governments who have wastewater systems, um, industry, uh, really for the regulated community as a whole, uh, we just have a lot more questions than we do answers from this decision. So I think the future holds more litigation, more questions, and probably some attempts by the EPA to do rulemaking, uh, but I really think that the United States Supreme Court is going to have to weigh in on this issue again at some point to give us some more clarity. Interesting. So the only certain thing is uncertainty, is what you started your answer with, and that kind of rings true for quite a bit that's going on in uh, in the world right now. It's it's a, a new time for sure. Um, so I just have a couple more questions for you, Jesse. I don't want to take too much of your time today. I know we're all really busy right now, but you mentioned some of these things are going back on the EPA um, moving forward. So how will the, the, the term that's come out of this case, how will the functional equivalent of a direct discharge be determined now, and what kind of complications might this develop? Well, this particular case, the Maui County case, 
now goes back to the lower court for the lower court to try to figure this out. And there are a few other cases that are pending that will also now go back to the lower court to try to figure out what functional equivalent means. And that's what one of the dissenting opinions said, is that now these lower courts are going to have to try to figure it out. Also, the EPA and the Corps of Engineers is going to have to try to figure it out. And so I think it's going to be a combination of courts and agencies. The agencies will be making rules. The courts will be interpreting those rules and applying those rules. And so we still have a long road ahead of us to try to get some more clarity on what this all means. Yeah, that sums it up pretty well. I mean, this case has been going on for a long time, and you're absolutely right. I think there's going to be a long road ahead as well um, in seeing where that comes to head. Um, that, that's all my questions for you today, Jesse. Is there anything you really want to stress to the listeners moving forward? Uh, no, I think you ask a lot of good questions. Um, I will mention one thing is that sure. there have been uh, some commentary out there that this case is really going to be a good thing for hydrogeologists. And the court did talk about science quite a bit. And so I think um, scientists, hydrogeologists, uh, may be able to look at this and, and be somewhat satisfied that the court is looking um, at the science. However, as your readers and, and you know, uh, science is just as messy as the law sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so what this decision really means is that we are going to look at everything on a case-by-case -case, uh, basis and we might need a lot of help from the hydrologists and the scientists going forward. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for your time. Thanks for talking to me today. I spoke with Jay Stone, who is Chief Engineer and a Senior Associate at Belt Collins. He is based in Honolulu, so we discussed some of the reactions those in Hawaii had to the case. Here's our interview. Okay, so I am here with Jay Stone, the Chief Engineer of Belt Collins. Um, first, Jay, what has been the response to the Supreme Court ruling in Hawaii? I do know that people were, prior to the decision, people were aware of it and were very interested in what would happen because the concern was that um, if it went one way, then uh, if you had the stormwater infiltration type of BNP, then would that need to have an NPDES permit? And so I know uh, prior to the decision, um, people had been talking about that kind of thing as being a concern and what the implications would be, depending on what the decision would be. Um, since the decision, I've just been uh, reading about it, different articles, and I read the decision on the Supreme Court case. Okay, and what are some of those effects now that you, you know know more about the case and have seen the ruling on it? What are kind of some of the effects the stormwater industry will see? Well, I can only speculate, but based 
you know, I read like an article in the New York Times, USA Today, and UPI, because it came out last week, and um, I read through the the uh, decision, and I think the the thing that um, is concerning in a way is is the definition um, or the criteria that was used in the decision and it's um, related to you know uh, a functionally what is it functionally equivalent what was that term functionally equivalent to a discharge and I mean, there were uh, examples in the decision that could be made but then it's like well what what do you it's still ambiguous right well how do you apply that standard to making a decision of whether or not something needs a permit uh, um, some of the examples in the decision are pretty you know it's kind of obvious right so one of the examples was like okay if there's a pipe 50 miles away from navigable waters and the pipe emits a pollutants they travel through the groundwater they mix with other material they end up in the navigable waters years later then the permitting requirements would not apply. But that seems kind of, I wouldn't say an extreme case, but it seems somewhat, you know, common sense. But what if it's something a lot less than that? What if it's just a few years? What if it's, you know, five miles away from the coast, right? And, you know, on an island, um, there's not very many places that are really far away, at least on our island from a navigable water. I mean, I can drive to the beach in like 20 minutes. <laughs> so, you know, what in, what infiltration is going to be regulated now? And it, it wasn't, they, the decision had examples, but it, it wasn't, uh, how should I say, it, it wasn't exhaustive, right? Mm -hmm. So there could be it said there could be other examples, right? And it talked about um, there could be other cases that would help define what that definition means, right? So it's, it's yeah, functional equivalent of a direct discharge. That was the that was the term that was used. I don't know what that means. <laughs> I mean that that's really the issue is. How, how is, and, and that's not to say that things shouldn't have a permit or things, if it's covered by the law, I mean, that's how it is, right? It's how do you, how do we implement this, right? You know, they talked about EPA giving guidance. They talked, uh, the, when I say they, I, I should say that the decision that was written, they talked about guidance, talked about other court cases, gave some examples, gave some factors, right? But it's 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 time and distance. How much time and how much distance is is the trigger that says, oh, okay, this is no longer a functional equivalent, or this is a functional equivalent of a direct discharge. Uh, the thing I found most interesting about the decision was that the Clean Water Act actually the whole purpose is to try and protect our waters, right? Mm -hmm. And so. It is a very broad law, 
and groundwater is, you know, our waters that can be affected. And then there are conduits that go from groundwater to, um, uh, to waters of the United States or navigable waters. So I think it's how, how are, how, how, how is that functional equivalent direct discharge going to be defined? So all, basically the Supreme Court, it didn't, it may, its decision is that it remanded the case back to the appeals court. So basically the two, the two parties in the Supreme Court case, the um, Supreme Court decision was both parties were too extreme in their interpretation of what the law meant. In some ways, I, I mirror the or echo uh, what the one of the dissenters said. It's it, the criteria or the definition that was used, the functional equivalent of the direct discharge, isn't necessarily any more definitive than what we had before. But I, it's better than nothing, I guess. And yeah. I, I think the the hard thing is going to be is what what will come out of this over time as more court cases you know come come up because this is courts will this is i reading it it's right different courts will provide additional guidance to decisions in individual cases yeah and so, so what kind of you know challenge does that provide does that provide in terms of projects going forward i think it's um so you have a infiltration basin right mm-hmm. and it's any pollutant right any pollutant so you say it captures a bunch of debris a bunch of sediment or say it captures even things like hydrocarbons or something like that and then it infiltrates to the ground ends up in the groundwater and then somehow ends up you know in the navigable water how do you then determine it came from that particular basin Right? How do you how are you even going to measure it? Right. Right. How are you going to track it? And how would you permit that? Right? Are we permitting it? I mean, do you have? Are you going to permit it like a like best like a like construction like BMP? Right. Like there's a BMP to your BMP that you just put in. You know, like if you build it in under best practices, then that seems okay. I think those are the the greater ramifications because how are you going to take, um, you know, how are you going to take uh, measurements of what it got infiltrated? I mean, what goes out to the surface is one thing. You can try and get a sample, but this is talking, this case is all about something going into the ground and then mixing in with groundwater and then ending up, you know, in the ocean or a stream. I, I think that kind of um that's the kind of thing that we're facing is the whole industry's facing municipalities you know engineers you know um even you know manufacturers how are you going to measure the impact and then tie that back to a permit right because right now there's no permits that exist for something like this but the decision talks about, you know, permits being developed potentially. So I think really yeah. that's, that's the hard thing moving forward is, and it's not done yet, right? Because it was remanded back to the Ninth Circuit to the appeals 
mm-hmm. uh, court for a further decision. So depends on what they decide. It's so early in this. Yeah. What was very interesting in the decision was how it talked about that groundwater was really, Congress had intended that it would be kind of regulated through the state. And they wouldn't necessarily come from, you know, the EPA, right? Because the Supreme Court is trying to interpret what the Congress, Congress at the time in the early 70s was trying to do, right? So mm-hmm. it could easily vary from state to state. For us, we're just one state. We're not connected to anyone, right? I'd be very interested to see how, do, how does this work with, like, landlocked states, right? Yeah. And then there's... A pollutant that goes into one state and then it ends up in a river. And does the downstream state then get to decide? Right? Because right. it's polluting our water, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I really think EPA has to provide some sort of guidance. You can't just leave it up to the courts, although that could be one case, unless there's some sort of academic consortium or something that decides to get together and put together a bunch of research and then propose something, or if there's something like from say ASCE or WEF or other professional organizations that decide to put in a, make a white paper or make certain guidelines or uh, a framework in how to interpret something like this. I mean, this, it, it, mm-hmm. this is going to go on for years. And it's going to change and evolve. And what we think of, you know, what anyone thinks of now may be, you know, totally different in five to 10 years, even mm-hmm. 20 years, as the whole industry tries to figure out how do we apply this in our particular case. Well, Jay, so, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks so much for those interviews to Nathan Gardner-Andrews from NACWA, um, Jesse Richardson on behalf of the National Groundwater Association Water Systems Council, and Jay Stone with Belt Collins. Um, if you had thoughts on the interviews or on this case, please reach out to us at talkingunderwater at sgcmail.com and follow us on Twitter at TUW Podcast to share your thoughts on what we discussed here. You can look out for our regular episode next week, and we'll be releasing more stay-at-home special episodes in subsequent weeks. So look out for those. Yeah, and if you want to see some more analysis of this case, um, you can visit that on Water and Waste Digest website. There's an easy link that you can access all of that at bit.ly slash case. And that will take you directly to that page where you can read all the interviews and all the analysis. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.